0: Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I am joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Pure essence. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. We are sorry. (laughs) And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into the episode, we thought we'd draw your attention to a couple of ways in which you can engage more with what we're doing here at Our 3 First of all, we have a YouTube channel, and on there we've got a whole ton of video content that you can find. Chris has been responsible for uploading a little mini-series called Hard Drop, which is looking at some of the more niche Tetris-alike games from uh, from history, and there's a new one that's just gone up recently, which I'm... Very much looking forward to watching myself, (laughs) I must say. There's also some streaming content on there. Me and Chris played through Streets of Rage 4. (laughs) That's a cracker. Good game. So check that out as well. If you like it, subscribe to the channel. We're uploading stuff all the time. You can also check out our Patreon page. If you're a really big fan of what we're doing here, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash our three cents. And have a look at some of the perks you can get in exchange for pledging your support. There's Patreon-exclusive deleted scenes and outtakes and full bonus episodes. There's custom artwork up for grabs, and there's even the chance to record an episode with us as well. So if you do like what we're doing, then please do head over and and have a look. This week, we have our 37th favourite video (gasps) games. Before we dive into our video gaming content, this week we have to revisit the quiz. All right. We always do. just rolls around every week. The score is currently 32 to 30 in favour of Chris, so let's see. Let's see. This is multiple choice, okay? Oh. What is the name of the iconic hero in the Tomb Raider series? Lara Lara Croft. (laughs) the point goes to minty oh yeah
1: was that really one that was multiple choice what were
2: the options
1: that's such an uh,
0: ubiquitous character yeah it's ridiculous yeah the choices were laura cruz cortana (laughs) lara croft or angelina jolie (sighs) i'm angry about that So the score is now thirty two to Chris and thirty-one to Minty. The oh. the margin is narrowing. I hate, in fact, I, hate I think it. you're gonna to have to do something about that because it doesn't look like a socially distanced margin <laughs> anymore. Next yeah. week
1: I'll maintain my two points of distance.
0: So what have we been playing this week? I'll tell you what I've been playing this week. Go on, then. I mean I've done the usual ticking along, Animal Crossing, that's going all right. I finally finished my fossil collection in my museum. Oh, oh well
1: done. I need one fossil.
0: I've also been trucking along with Mario Maker 2. I have finished my fourth and fifth worlds now oh. in my Super World that I've created. So that's the new Super Mario Brothers U and the Super Mario 3D World themed ones. And uh, yeah, I've got I've got one more world planned a sixth world which is going to be like one last gauntlet run of of five hard levels to like, properly test you Chris I'm scared and uh, <laughs> I'm challenging myself to try and use up some of the bits and bobs and elements that I haven't used in, in any of the other levels so it's sort of testing myself to uh, creatively to, to to use some of those but it's it's been great fun i i've i've really enjoyed it especially the super mario 3d world one. i was able to do a lot more sort of puzzle based levels using some of the some of the elements and the mechanics and the on-off switches and some of the different power-ups and everything and yeah really really good fun so i i'm i'm so excited to finish it and to, to see you tackle it. Chris, <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be great it'll
1: all be on the youtube channel if if anyone is interested in watching me fail endlessly some of these stages uh <laughs> (laughs) I I will be recording all of my attempts to get through this uh, Super Jonathan world.
0: Excellent. Well, it's actually going to be called Super Oathnange world because the name Jonathan was taken. (laughs) Oathnange (laughs) is my Viking anagram of my name. I also picked up a new game on the eShop the game Hyperlight Drifter Ooh. have you heard of it?
1: I have I've not played it but um, it's a very pretty game isn't it?
0: It is yes it's an indie game lovely pixel art there's a surprise <laughs> it's basically like a top-down adventure action game and uh, yeah it's very it's very mysterious and sort of evocative there's 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 not really much sort of uh, explicitly told to you in terms of the story. There's very minimal text and dialogue. If you interact with the character, it's usually done in the form of like pictures rather than words. So it's, yeah, it's quite engaging and I've sort of got my head around how the game works roughly. So, yeah, looking forward to sort of plowing on with with that. I also picked up Golf with Friends on Xbox Game Pass Ooh, which is no. Team 17's multiplayer mini golf game and it's, it's it's good it's really really nice yeah there's a huge range of 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 like holes and courses and and things that you can do and there's loads of customization options you can change like the size and shape and color of your of your ball, which is quite fun. So if oh. you want, you can do a game where you're just playing with cubes and see how you get on. Hmm. It's it's good. It's a nice game. It's it's unfortunately it's it's much more expensive on the Switch than it is on anything else. It's of fifteen course. quid on the Switch as opposed to like seven quid on Steam, I think, and it's part of Xbox Game Pass. But if if any if anybody does want to get it on the Switch, I, th- I think it would be a nice fit, so I could play it handheld. Let me know, and um, and and I'll, I'll pick it up on the Switch, and so I can play it with some some real people, which would be would be really nice. So real uh,
2: friends. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to be picking it up. I think.
0: Oh, good. Yeah, I just love golf games. They're good. So yeah, my task for the next week is to finish my Mario Maker Super World, and finish Hyper Light Drifter in time for Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition on Friday, which I. Absolutely can't wait for Gosh I'm excited How about you guys what, what about you Chris
1: I've played quite a bit this week Like for my uh, Animal Crossing update I've now made my 10 million On the stock market In profit
0: Hey, Well done So
1: I've largely retired from, from hawking my wares <laughs> Over the internet <laughs> I then spent a few days like building a little bamboo-filled landmass that's kind of annexed from the rest of the island by like you know it has nice. like a little natural stream and some bits that are meant to look a bit more um, you know less man-made I suppose because all my houses now I've I've built into kind of strict straight lines yeah in a little sort of city area and I wanted to make sure some of the rest of the island still looked natural nice nice but yeah I feel content and proud of, of my uh, continued progress in Animal Crossing. In terms of other games, I've beaten two very good indie games this week. Both of them that I've had kind of on my list to play for quite a while and just never got around to it. First, I played Gone Home.
0: Oh yeah, what a great game.
1: It's fantastic. And I put off playing it for a very long time because I don't know why really. I think I had it on the on the <laughs> PS4. Um, I got it through like uh, PlayStation Plus one month, I think it was on there. Yeah. And then just never, never started it. And then... Have had it on the switch for a little while when it got that port um, and it's only recently obviously I've, I've picked it up but for anyone that's not played it it's it's a walking sim it's like a narrative game you are a young girl returning to the united states after traveling around europe your family has moved into like a large mansion when you've been away and you arrive back there in the dead of the night. And find that both your parents and your younger sister are just nowhere to be found, and you spend basically the whole game like piecing together what has happened through finding little notes or or bits for ephemera or other like environmental storytelling, and find keys to unlock parts of the house or secret passageways, etc. And the one thing I was worried about when I was playing it, it does have a really spooky atmosphere because the the type of house it is, like a, a big old piece of architecture, like an old mansion, and I was really worried that something was going to jump out and get me. Uh, and like halfway through the game it starts to suggest that little bits about the occult as well and I was really thinking like am I going to be able to finish this but for (laughs) anyone who is worried for anyone who is as scared as me of all games there are no jump scares there's nothing that's going to jump out so so just kind of push through those bits and you'll just find a really really well-written game that tackles like some really heavy themes and and does really really well at kind of exploring narrative in a way that only games could do like in terms of physical space and it, it does a really good job. So, big thumbs up for that.
0: I like the way that it kind of plays on the conventions of the sort of abandoned house in the, at night yeah because it does have a real atmosphere to it but it reminds me actually because I, I bought um slender the arrival the oh, slender man game no. on the switch e-sharp no and yeah i played it for about five <laughs> minutes and was like absolutely shitting not no i'm not no <laughs> and yeah gone home feels like that when you start it up but mm. then by the time you finish the game you feel you feel like safe and comforted it's uh it, it's yeah. quite amazing it was it's one of the first games i picked up when i got a ps4 when I, I was like, right, I want to crack on with some of those indie walking simulator games. So I got like Gone Home and I got Everyone's Gone to the Rapture and The Vanishing of Ethan Carter and those ones mm. and Firewatch. But it's, it's, um, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, definitely recommended. The second game I played, a lesser known one, but one that I got as like a limited disc through limited run at some point. It's just been on the shelf for years. Uh, is a game called Desert Child which is now on basically all platforms. So if people do like the sound of it, you can pick it up most places. It's a racing game come RPG, come exploratory adventure thing. Uh, like a real mix of genres. But again, it's really, really good. And and you basically, you start off, you live on Earth in like a near future. You need to make money through racing hover bikes to allow you to travel to Mars, like making enough money to, to get off the planet, to continue to try and sort of make it big on the racing scene. The races are these quite simple, like side-scrolling affairs but it's everything outside of the races that really, really stands up. Like the racing, and I do mean this in a, the most affectionate way towards a developer because it's literally one guy did everything. Probably my least favourite part of the whole game, even though that is the core of it. But what I really loved was it's got a really nice like early PC pixel art style, like old LucasArts adventures for the bits in between the races. It's got like... A weird sort of coherently incoherent nature as well like it's it's this newly developed place this this mars colony and it feels very cyberpunk but not just in the way that cyberpunk sometimes gets used now just to mean well it's kind of a bit futuristic isn't it and, and no one really thinks about what it's supposed to mean in terms of to have this like dystopic elements as well and it definitely has like a bit of a seedy underbelly to this city on mars but laid on top of like a very human implementation of of colonization and and interplanetary travel as we might have it in the future it's also really nice to see like this little hub world is filled with people of all races and faiths it's like it's a proper multicultural community but it also has these ideas of of crime and industry and and it just feels very real despite the fact it is like a piece of sci-fi essentially every bit of the game i found like no matter how slight an interaction is It always seems purposeful and considered when you're talking to like NPCs and making your way around the world. And despite it having quite a small playing area, it's designed in such a way that's meant to be a bit confusing. Like you are meant to feel like this is an alien place that you're having to learn and get around. And it makes a few like really clever decisions to make this feel as like, relatable as possible despite the setup. So in between each race, you can't quick travel anywhere. You have to walk from street to street. So you start to orientate yourself in, in this little little city. And it also has this weird obsession with food as well. So after each race, you have to make sure your bike is repaired sensibly because that's what you're doing as, as each kind of event. But also you're expected to visit all these different kind of like food parlours and restaurants to, to try different things and see the effects it has on your stats and your hunger skills and, and all these different things. Yeah. And it just gives the game like, excusing the pun, like real flavour. It's, it's got like a real, a real kind of like flavor to the whole world that, that i think is done really really well I, I was just hugely surprised at how much i enjoyed it like i put it on expecting like oh, i'll play a few races and see what i think but i, I finished the whole game 100 percent over the course of like an afternoon like four or five hours and it's it's quite rare that i do that these days so something clearly like got its hooks in me so yeah two very different indie games, but two that I would absolutely recommend, and that you can play on basically any modern platform. So, if you do see them, maybe in a cheap sale or something, I think they're both worth picking up. Gone Home and Desert Child.
0: Hmm. Nice. How about you, Minty? What have you been playing this week? Oh, you know me. Dragon Quest? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 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 No, but... (laughs) I'm playing <laughs> less
2: and less Animal Crossing, much to my wife's delight, so that she can really you know go to town on terraform in the island, etc. But I've been playing a little, 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 little bit of a smidgen of Dead Cells, a Not smidgen me. of Labyrinth of Refrain. I also started to play Disgaea 5 again. Ah. I don't think I'm that far into it, but my goodness, there's a lot of
1: auxiliary mechanics, so I still haven't got a clue what I'm doing.
2: <laughs> which seems to be a theme. Maybe it's something
1: to do with me. The last disguise game I played, I played the first one on the PS2, and that's the only one I've ever played. And my, my only memory I have of that, I don't remember the story, I don't really remember like the battle mechanics. I just remember that every weapon and item... You could get inside and then fight through like a thousand-floor dungeon to improve the stats of an individual item. This is what I'm doing currently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that that is the uh, the minty battle tower thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so that's good fun.
0: Shall we move on to the rankings? Yes. Starting this week, we have my game. Oh, Jonathan Dunn's game. <laughs> Love that song. So me and you, Chris, we have both fallen on our swords when it comes to Panzer Dragoon Saga in recent weeks. We know that, having revisited the game, that it's ended up being placed far too low on both our lists. And uh, this is particularly troublesome when going forward because, well, like you said last week, even though obviously you love nine hours, nine persons, nine doors, you know it's (laughs) not as good as Panzer Dragoon Saga. (laughs) No, it really isn't. And in truth, neither is Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3. (laughs) Whoa.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 is a great game. Yes,
0: it is still a game and indeed a series that has brought me an incredible amount of joy and fun. And I probably poured more hours into this series than many, many others. You know, it will be up there with like Pokemon and Zelda in terms of time dedicated to it. Like we've touched on before, I've picked out the GameCube version of the third game to sort of stand in for my love of the whole series. Yeah, and it probably is the game that that really made me sort of love the series on it on a new level. But you know, I didn't want to litter my list with a handful of Tony Hawk's games, so I thought, yeah, okay, right, I'll pick one to represent all of them. So for those of you who haven't experienced the series, the games are essentially a totally unrealistic arcade skateboarding experience where you play as a lineup of classic real-life skaters such as Tony Hawk, and there'll be lots of different levels and areas for you to skate around in, each of which will have some like items to collect, but your main objective is just to rack up the highest score you can. And you mostly do this by stringing together long combos of tricks without stacking it and breaking the combo so you can pull off kicks and flips whilst grabbing some air off a ramp, or you can grind a rail or pull off a manual to link all these tricks together. And the longer you pull off a combo, the harder it becomes to retain your balance when grinding or manualing So you're you're constantly taking a gamble with, with pulling off another trick in your combo or trying to land it and banking the points. And the games lean, you know, quite heavily into the skating culture, so there's, you know, punk and rock and roll music and aesthetics everywhere, graffiti and, and all that sort of stuff so let me take you back to my first exposure to the series for most people it was the playstation one and the original tony hawk's pro skater and then the groundbreaking tony hawk's pro skater 2 on the same machine but for me because it didn't get a satin port those versions had to pass me by (laughs) dead to me Yeah, you know, I, I, I simply just dismissed it as as another playground dross along with Final Fantasy. <laughs> All that old horse shit. Oh. But I remember hearing people talking about it at school and talking about certain levels and areas and secrets in the game that... Obviously, all went right over my head, and I was there like, "Oh, do you remember the bit where Edge gets his dragon back and saves Azel?" <laughs> Classic. <laughs> but I was genuinely thrilled when I found out that a port of the second game was coming out on the Game Boy Advance. <laughs> <laughs> what I,
1: it's just one of these memories like if anyone talks about Tony Hawks 2 I just think of you playing it on the Game Boy Advance oh really yeah more than anything like oh like, I had it on the Game Boy Advance it was, yeah. it was a good port I, I know it was a really solid oh, yeah, game yeah it was but yeah it is like one of those it's a Jonathan Dunn game in my head
0: <laughs> oh that's good well I'm glad <laughs> Now, as I've mentioned before, I got my hands on an imported Japanese Game Boy Advance and a copy of Super Mario Advance, and this was, like, way before it was released in the UK, but the cost of importing games was so high, and, and there weren't many other GBA games that I thought I could play through the Japanese language barrier, so Mario Advance had, you know, tied me over for many, many months until the GBA was released over here, and some English language games came with it. Now, I'd saved up enough pocket money, and I had pre-ordered two games at WH Smiths, which were Rayman Advance, the GBA port of the original Rayman game, and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. Now, I remember on the release date, I had to ask permission to go into Ramsgate Town Centre on my lunch break so I could pick them up, <laughs> because you weren't allowed to go into town unless you are in, like, sixth form or something. And I remember I, I went to go and see our head of year, Mr. Hughes, and I I, oh, I admit, I told him a bit of a fib. What did you say? Because I didn't think... Well, <laughs> I told him I was going to WH Smiths to get Peter Gabriel's autobiography as a birthday present for my brother, which I think was a very plausible excuse. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very on brand, that is. A veritable confidence trick I was able to pull off with significant aplomb. And I returned to the playground with my two new games, an absolute hero and, indeed, a legend, so I recall... <laughs> now I knew what, I knew what I was getting with Rayman Advance, a, you know, a pretty faithful port of the original game that I'd loved on the Saturn, but the experience of Tony Hawk on the Game Boy Advance was entirely new, unexpected to be honest, and yeah, like we said, quite frankly, brilliant. Now the team responsible for the port is called uh, Vicarious Visions and they worked absolute wonders in translating the game into a handheld form and indeed they continued to do so with the DS ports of later Tony Hawk's games and yeah. they're also the team uh, incidentally responsible for the incredibly ambitious Guitar Hero DS port which included <laughs> that like, arthritis inducing guitar grip add-on oh, it's yeah. not that bad no it's not it was entirely playable Yeah. and also quite excitingly they're also the team behind the recently announced remake of the first two Tony Hawk's games which bodes well for their quality I Correct, think yeah. Uh, Hopefully a return to form after a pretty dire string of games in the series. Yeah. Anyway, back to the GBA. All of the areas from the full console game were recreated here in beautiful isometric 2D. And all of the fluidity of pulling off increasingly absurd strings of tricks was also here. And it was it was a real joy to play. You know, occasionally you would fall foul of the lack of depth perception that comes with playing the game in 3D which would make some of the more ridiculous lines quite hard to pull off but I mean I loved it I absolutely loved it and the follow-up port of Tony Hawk's 3 on the Game Boy Advance was even better you know really pushing the hardware of the system to its full and it looked and played fantastic with you know even more ambitious areas as well so I was I was never a skater in real life. I did. Uh, I did dabble with rollerblading for a little bit, but I, I never. I never really got into skateboarding or skateboarding culture. But I was a really, really big fan of the series before I even got to, to playing one of the the proper console versions of the game. But when I had my GameCube, I remember picking up Tony Hawk's Three pretty cheap. I think actually it was quite a few years after it had been released and. I mean, oh my oh my, I was enraptured. You know, it was great to finally play the game how it, you know, was obviously intended, even though I had a fantastic time playing the Game Boy Advance versions. And it was nice to kind of flip the coin a little bit, because all of the little areas that I remembered from the Game Boy Advance version were now here in fully fledged 3D. And obviously there was an enormous amount more content to experience. There were so many different skaters with their individual quirks and properties and, and special tricks. There's so many little details everywhere, so many things to find and unlock, and there was this real sense of like discovery and exploration that the game had, which is like almost reminiscent of like an open world game. There's loads of secrets to find, secret areas behind like breakable walls or massive chain events you could trigger that would change the layout of a level, secret lines that you could find and try and pull off, loads of unlockables. One of my favourite things to unlock with the little showcase videos of the real life skaters yeah. and I, I really enjoyed watching them it, especially I think it was um oh what was his name the guy who was really good at manualing and doing tricks was it Rodney Rodney Mullen. Rodney Mullen yes it was and that was great and I really enjoyed watching that and it was my only exposure to actual real life skateboarding at all were those little videos and there were loads of like silly secret characters you could unlock as well. I think in Tony Hawk 3 you could get Darth Maul and Wolverine. Which is just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, Darth Maul was in it. Yeah. Yeah. I think my favorite level in the game was the cruise ship level. Like I really enjoyed being able to skate all the way around the rails of the ship and like drain the swimming pool and use that as a bowl real reason I loved it is because I actually had the world record for the highest score on that level. Oh, did you? I did. I did. I, I haven't checked to see whether the score still stands. It was about <laughs> 38 million or, or something. And, you know, I mean, whilst I was, you know, admittedly quite good at the game and was getting some pretty big scores the reason I got this record was because I actually found a little glitch in the level <laughs> that would allow you to, to <laughs> like keep jumping off a piece of bunting and increase your combo and not lose your balance and you could just keep that going long after the level time had run out because you hadn't landed the trick and so you could just keep it going and going and going and I was like 38 million I'll land it now that was literally about 10 10 <laughs> times uh, higher than like the, the, the previous world record so that was quite fun I also had a real fondness for the suburbia level because there was this like sinister haunted house in there and you could pull off this like insane line to get all the way to the top of the house and release some bats and you could smash pumpkins strewn around the graveyard surrounding it and yeah that was really really good fun. Now I did um and ah about which game from the series to put in here after I'd done all I could do in 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 number three I then bought number four and then I bought Tony Hawk's Underground and by the time I'd done away with those Underground 2 had come out and I got that as well but number three is is where it properly started for me in in my love of the series but having said that some of the levels and areas and mechanics and stuff that were introduced later in the series were I mean just amazing and particularly Tony Hawk's 4 some of the areas in that were just some of my all-time favorites you had the Alcatraz level that was like a real highlight there was a really fun zoo level and a carnival level. There was quite a fun London-themed level, which was quite cool, and a college level. Then, when when the series moved to the Underground games, it was a, it was a good evolution to the series. It had like a proper open-world style gameplay, which was great. And one of the things you could do is hop on and off your board whilst you were running around the map. And there was like a proper fully-fledged story to it. And the games just like continued to get better and better in terms of scope and ambition and design all the way up until I can't remember what point it was but I'd stopped playing the games by that point and it sort of fell off a cliff and and like from what I've read <laughs> it hasn't been a good one since like I think I had no. was American Wasteland I had the DS port of that and that was quite good
1: Yeah I would say uh, Wasteland and the, the DS port which was called Skateland were probably the mm. last good Tony Hawk's games
0: Yeah but I mean like I said it's not a better game than Panzer Dragoon Saga <laughs> <laughs> But it is a game, and indeed a series of games that, for the games I played, certainly were incredibly well made, with like a great vision that combined, you know, the joy of skateboarding with a proper arcadey sense of fun, which like other skateboarding games never matched. Yeah. Like I remember when like the skate games came out, they were really marketed on being like a realistic skating experience, which is why I hated them because <laughs> it was incredibly hard just to pull off an ollie, let alone any tricks. Yeah and the tony hawks games never took themselves too seriously and their priority first and foremost was to be fun and yeah that's why they're so dear to my heart certainly these ones that i've mentioned and uh yeah that's why i've placed tony hawks pro skater 3 as my 37th favorite video game of all time a game that is better than panzer dragoon saga yep (laughs) you were a skater weren't you chris for a bit i certainly
1: tried The, the, one of my this is like one of my biggest life disappointments that around that age so probably like what fourteen fifteen yeah I knew people who could skate and I was like I want to skate and and Tony Hawk's is great and all this stuff is going on and I want to be part of that culture and I bought a skateboard for like a reasonable amount of money not not like a gold plated one but <laughs> I spent more than just like I, you know it was more than a fiver I, I actually went to a skate shop at a skate park and bought a proper deck and everything like that and I I tried. Every day. I practiced every day for months. And in about six months, I never even landed an ollie. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I understood the physics of it. I knew what my legs were supposed to do. I knew what my feet were supposed to do and how I was supposed to pop the tail and brush my foot forwards and do everything else. Like I still have it all internalized for how it's supposed to work. And it just never happened. And it, it's always been this disappointment in the back of my head <laughs> honestly the the only time that i've ever landed an ollie and this is another good story is um i mentioned to a student once who was like big into skateboarding a couple years back that when i was a kid i always wanted to skate and i couldn't do it and whatever and he on like a non-school uniform day had come in and had his deck with him and i was on duty outside of like the school building and he was like come on then sir. show us what you can do mm-hmm. and he gave me the skateboard and i was like this is a terrible idea <laughs> This is, a, this is a really bad idea. Like, I've not, I've not even stood on a skateboard for probably 15 years. This is a terrible idea. And as I was putting it on the floor, I was like, just come on, to something. Like, you, you don't even have to achieve anything much. And I landed, like, a perfect ollie. Like, a big old pop in the air, Amazing. straight down. And, and it was, like, the highlight of my adult life.
0: <laughs> Amazing. That's wonderful. Did all of the kids cheer? They, they did. <laughs> That's brilliant. Honestly, <laughs> That's it's, brilliant. it's the most powerful I've
1: ever felt as a teacher. <laughs>
0: I haven't decided if I'm going to get the remakes.
1: I am. I'm definitely going to get. Them.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're, it's they're quite cheap. Like I've seen that you can pre-order it for like thirty quid or something.
1: Yeah, it might be shit. I, I still have this thing in my head that it could be shit, but
0: yeah. But then the fact that Vicarious Visions are behind it gives yeah. me real hope for it. Yeah. Moving on, we have Chris's game. Hello. Can you please tell us about your thirty-seventh favorite video game of all time and tell us why it is? Two games better than Panzer Dragoon Saga. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I will certainly try. To date, on our lists, we have discussed a fair few first-person shooters, and I've mentioned things like Deus Ex and Halo and GoldenEye and a few others. Jonathan, you've you've talked up series like Thief and Dishonored, and um, Minty, you've you've offered uh, Chirac. I have, yes. But none of these games would exist if it were not for my thirty-seventh favorite game of all time. Oh, because it is a first-person oh. shooter that. Improved on every title in the genre before it. It's a first-person shooter that has been ported to basically every system in existence, either by official release or through homebrew. And it is a first-person shooter that plays as good, if not better, in 2020 than it did in 1993. Because it's Doom, isn't it? Yeah, oh, of course like, it is. It's bloody Doom. Brilliant. It's only bloody
0: Doom, innit? Oh. It's only bloody Doom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like for me, I, doom, I'm doom, not doom, a Doom. Doom. <laughs> doom. 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 <laughs> <laughs> For me, like, I'm not a Doom aficionado. Like, I've never beaten it on its highest difficulty or found all its secrets or anything like that. I've never been particularly invested in its lore that's kind of grown over each game. But I have enjoyed Doom over its many different ports and iterations, irrespective of kind of each one having perhaps a slightly different atmosphere, you know, a different character, and in some cases, like, different technological challenges as well. Some people argue, like, as purists, that Doom needs to be played on a keyboard with its original bindings to truly enjoy it. But... I think that's poor shit. It's just <laughs> one of those things I think I think is nonsense. Like it's, it's a game that has miraculously stood the test of time, no matter what platform it's been shoehorned onto or into. Like for my personal history, I, I first played Doom on a friend's PC near its original release. So probably in the mid nineties, I was absolutely terrified of it. Like, as a kid, Minty, you mentioned ages ago, like, being spooked by Doom. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's demonic imagery and, and hellish enemies. It was just too much for me at that age. And I remember, like, attempting to try and move using a PC keyboard that was just so alien to me because I'd only ever had a master system and a Mega Drive. I never had to really control something across, like, WASD or however it was set up back in 93 on, on a PC. Later on, I played it on a friend's PlayStation 1. I had a bit more control because it was obviously on an actual pad, but it was actually a game I found more terrifying because the driving metal soundtrack that the PC version had had been replaced with ambient noises, clanks and drones, and it had this horribly oppressive atmosphere that made it feel like a proper horror game as opposed to a shooter. I played it a little bit later then on a friend's SNES, which is out of release sync, but but there we go. And on the SNES, the resolution was so low that I couldn't be terrified because it was, you know, amazing. <laughs> it was in running on the machine, but I, I was in genuine awe that a 3D game like this was running on the same hardware that that afternoon we'd also played Super Mario World. It's that like, it's just unbelievable that, that that was in a console uh, of that time. So, the first copy I own personally, which has a, a weird connection to um, what you said about Tony Hawks, Jonathan, was um, on the Game Boy Advance. Oh, Doom on yeah. the GBA. And it wasn't a looker, but it was Doom. And, and bits were cut and rearranged to make it work on the handheld. But I didn't care. Like, the, the GBA was the first console that let me play Doom properly. I also played its predecessor, Wolfenstein 3D, on the, on the Game Boy Advance. And for some reason on that format, those games just started to fall into place and make sense to me. Mm. It was then that I was like, okay, Doom Doom is a really good game. <laughs> Doom is something special. And I'd go on to play it on the PSP via homebrew, played it on the Xbox 360 because it got a port through live arcade. And then most recently, I played it sort of properly again on the Switch. Yeah. And what it made me realize, like going back to this again and again over the years, is Doom is a great action game. I think Doom is a great horror game. I think it's a really great survival game. And it's even like a good orienteering game. It's better than pretty much every first-person shooter that has released over the last few generations. <laughs> and I think that's for for kind of three main reasons that, that I want to talk about. Like firstly, it is a game that it's slow and methodical but it lets you go really fucking fast if you want to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: Too fast for me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but they, they're stages that are stuffed full of secrets all over the place. They're constructed to make every encounter like challenging, that you can be tactical and, and use cover and everything else. Each stage will require like key cards to open doors, but there's never any hand-holding or signposting. You just have to go out and look and work out where you are and kind of figure it out. And it means that every time you play, the first play through a level is always tense as you're kind of scavenging for keys and ammo and, and other kind of collectibles. But later repeat plays just get faster and faster and faster as you start to memorize routes and learn which mobs can be avoided entirely and, and uncover shortcuts and all sorts of stuff. I find like of games to watch speedruns of, Doom is like almost mesmeric because the players showcase the extremes that the game design was built to allow and like, there's a reason why when you finish a level, you're given stats that say how many kills you got, the secrets you found, but most importantly, the time. Like it's a game that was always about being able to say, oh, I, can, I reckon I can do that quicker. And that was just built into the, the core of it, that you sort of got faster and faster. You started slow. And as it kind of started to make more sense to you, you, you got better and speedier. Secondly, it's a game about systems. Way before people were worrying about sort of like the immersive sim genre, so a lot of first persons now will talk up how enemies can work together or how you can exploit wildlife to give you a leg up during battle, like in things like Far Cry and stuff like that. Doom was, was more explicit. Like it just said like, okay, here are your weapons. They work like this. Here are the enemies. They work like this. But rather than just be like a shooting gallery, like sort of a 3D space invaders, Doom adds in, I don't know, the way I described it is like additional verbs so that is to say like certain enemies will react or respond to your actions like this or or they'll interact with other enemies because there's like a tiered system of who's more powerful and, and who will get in the way of the others and who will attack each other and everything else. Your projectiles behave in a certain way. Weapons reload in a certain way. And I think you can beat pretty much any level in Doom on almost its highest difficulty using just the starting pistol if you learn and exploit these systems. like You can be really methodical and tactical about the way you approach it, despite the fact it can be a super speedy action game. Thirdly, and, and finally is the thing that I think sets it apart, it has an atmosphere all its own. And I, I do think the modern Doom games like 2016's Doom or, or this year's Doom Eternal, they do a pretty good job in modernizing what gave Doom its edge back then. So it was always a game that was quite in your face. And I think in the modern games, they they basically took things like the soundtrack, like the MIDI metal of of 1993, and transposed it to really down-tuned eight-string guitars and double bass pedals and industrial synth. And it it works to kind of capture some of that feeling in, in a modern context. It also, like the gore of the original, which was pretty brutal for the time. Again, as a kid, I was like, oh, I don't know. If, I don't think I should be seeing this. <laughs> like, seeing how that's kind of held up now, it's really been ramped up. And, and I think id Software, when they made these modern games, really got what people liked about Doom and, and tried to kind of put it in a in a new context. But the original still holds up. Like, it still feels desolate and oppressive. It still feels a bit spooky. And yet on top of that, because of, like I said, about how the weaponry works and, and how you can be speedy and fast and everything else, it still gives you the opportunity to have this sort of power fantasy because the clunk of the weaponry and and the speed at which you can traverse a space and know where to go and and when to go and everything else means that you can still be powerful. You can still be the big doom slayer kind of thing. I'm sure some current gen first person shooters are great. Like as much as we, we kind of... I feel like we shit on them quite a lot, <laughs> just kind of in passing. Just a simple drive by shit on them. <laughs> like I say, it's not my genre. The first person shooter is not really my thing. And, and despite my adoration for Doom, I, I don't believe for a second that every game in the genre is worthless. It's, it's just, it sometimes comes across like that when you're just given like endless brown army-based shoot-em-ups that, that just don't mean anything to me. And for me, it's like every once in a while, I might play a stage of a new Call of Duty or I might play a few rounds of a competitive game like Overwatch. And the thing that I feel disappointed by is not that they're not fun, not that I haven't got something out of them. It's just they don't feel as well designed as a game that's like coming up for 25 years previous. Like D- Doom is more than kind of that early 90s shock value. It's it's a really layered, systemic, well-planned and designed game. I, I suppose the, the, the comparison as well is things like it isn't, Something like Mortal Kombat attempting to be better than Street Fighter just by adding blood and gore to a really average game. It it had that as its atmosphere, but underneath that, it was a a proper revolution in what the genre was and, and could be. And what I find a bit sad is that I don't think many people or many designers are really doing that much with that format. Like, obviously, we've had offshoots in things like we mentioned today, like walking simulators, I suppose, have a connection to first person shooters, but in terms of the actual like action-based gunplay of, of a first-person shooter, we, we're not doing anything new with it. And that's always a bit disappointing, really. I think Doom is just about the best first-person shooter we ever made. <laughs> and it's a game that I'm, I'm pretty shit at. Like I said, I've never really truly beat. But I really do respect and enjoy everything about it. And it's, again, it's probably not as good as Panzer Saga in my head, but <laughs> we're, we're starting to get to that stage where I go, no, this is this is a good game. Uh, and as they start to merge as we go up, like the top chunks of all of our lists is, are going to be stuffed with good games, mm-hmm. like seriously good games. And, and Doom is one of those. Number 37, a really, really good game. You're right. You're very right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. I, re- I
1: really do. And like I said, it's not it's not my genre but it's something that I've come back to every time it's available to me. The
0: mm. first time I played it properly was on the Switch. But I had a really good time playing it on the, on the Switch. I yeah, I think it's interesting you sort of pointed out the orienteering side of the game because I found that yeah. sort of the the navigation and sort of puzzle elements of it really set it apart from yeah. any other game certainly from that era and I think it's a good example of a game that I think the limitations of the tech of the time meant that it made a game that was more set apart from everything else and probably mm. better than something now where people can do anything, you know? And it's like, yeah, just because you can do a, a massive Call of Duty game that's photo real and doing all of this stuff doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be as, as good a game. The,
1: the thing with Call of Duty in particular, like I know this is not for every entry, but a lot of them have just gone down this kind of set template of essentially being just a corridor that you hide behind things and you pop out and you shoot people, and then you get to the end and there's a, a big room and you shoot people in that, and you go in a corridor, then you go in a room, then you go in a corridor, big explosion, end of stage. And and it's it's very, very linear. And I think the biggest difference for something like Doom and, and games that were closer to that era, maybe in, in the 90s, when this genre was was first starting to kind of build, was that they were far more open and there was less, like I said, there was no handholding. So, so finding key cards and working, working out how the level was structured was just part of the experience. That exploration was just intended as part of the experience, as opposed to people now that are like, well, I just want to get to the next bit. You know, that, that's annoying. I don't want to have to walk around. I just want to go forwards. And yeah, I think we've lost something as, as we've gone more towards that because uh, looking around is fun poking around places is fun it is how do you think the sequels stack up i think in in terms of gameplay they're they're pretty good they're not as open like playing through i haven't played eternal properly this year but Mm. but the one in 2016 I, i beat most of and the stages in that they are more kind of straightforward but they still feel kind of twisty enough and they still have areas that are open enough that you're you're encouraged to kind of explore a little bit. Yeah. And they're very good games, but I think for slightly different reasons, like I said, they they do capture the atmosphere really well. I, I think I'm really impressed with that. But it's more, um, I think they did stuff with movement uh, and kind of the, the rhythm of battle that was quite different to the original games. Yeah. And and they don't really have the survival element that the original games do. You're, you're never left wanting for, for ammunition. It's just like balls to the wall action start to finish. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing that's very, very different about those ones. So they're, they're very good just in a in a different way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize sort of how much of a departure Doom 3 was from the series because I had Doom 3 3- On the PC. I mean, I only played the first 20 minutes of it. I think we said before about how I just that that mechanic in the original release of you can either hold a torch or a gun is one of the best things that's ever been put in a game. It's genius and it's, you know, meant that I shit myself. I I spent all my money on a game that I played for 20 minutes and so fair play to them. (laughs) That's a good mechanic. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But playing Doom, the 2016 Doom on the Switch and then playing the original Doom on the Switch really made me appreciate just what a good job bethesda had done in like you said recreating the the feel of the original doom in a modern context and uh yeah Yeah. i I really i really enjoyed that i I haven't finished it actually i need to i may may get back into that at some point but yeah there we go doom 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 (laughs) finally we have minty Minty, can you please tell us about your 37th favourite video game of all time? I can indeed. Thanks for asking. You're very welcome. What's your favourite button on a controller ever? The big A button on the GameCube.
1: Yeah. Oh,
2: oh mm, okay, cool. Mine's the N64Z button. Oh, hello. Interesting. It was a, near enough a quirky innovation on a weird controller that was, it was very close to making complete sense. The trigger that you activated with <laughs> your left hand to make your right-handed avatar shoot in any number of first-person. Person shooters <laughs> going back to the uh, to the big a button let's let's talk about uh, more weird ways to fire things in nintendo games like metroid prime slap on the x-ray visor and you'll see that samus uses her index finger to fire whenever you press the a button with your thumb I don't know why but it's always stuck with me move on to 2007 you've got the culmination of wrong hand and wrong digit to fire or at least i did The best part of the Wii for me was finally being able to lefty swap the entire controller. So there I am with the Wii mote in my left hand, using my thumb to fire, whilst my character uses her index finger on her right hand to fire in Metroid Prime 3 Corruption. There's a lot going for Prime 3, and I don't really know where to begin, so I'm just going to get the obligatory out of the way. Motion controls were implemented just fine. <laughs> Point the Wii remote at the screen to shoot. Flick the nunchuck to fire a lasso that can pull a switch. Done. Something I thought that was great about the Prime Trilogy was the development of the overarching story and the greater focus of storytelling through friendly NPCs as you moved on in the series. The first Prime game had you traverse Talon 4 on your own, with only history books and ship logs to flesh out what took place on this abandoned planet. Prime 2 adds one NPC, and then Prime 3 gives you the Galactic Federation and three friendly rival Bounty Hunters to not only drive the story forward, but also to establish the universe that Samus Aran operates in, who she works with and who she fights, all works together to deepen this world that we've been enjoying. But just as the trilogy expands the supporting cast, uh, Prime 3 also shaves it down to the bare minimum by the end of the game, as the antagonistic substance Phazon wait for it, corrupts those who you once called friends, leading you to eliminating them one by one until everything comes full circle and you're left fighting alone once more. The first Metroid Prime game was incredible at building that sense of isolation and threat from all corners of the world, but to have that isolation creep into the third game by your own hand gave Corruption an unexpectedly sombre feel to it. You're a badass bowdy hunter in a literal killing machine suit type thing, and you finally managed to eradicate the great poison sweeping across the galaxy, but at what cost? (laughs) speaking of learning about things that are bigger than your character another great thing in Prime 3 is the implementation of her gunship no longer just a parked up and ready to be used as a save point uh, thing on the world, the gunship can now be controlled to drop a payload of bombs to open up new areas, Uh, it can also be used to lift huge debris to open up new areas, and it can also carry and drop large bits of detritus to open up new areas (laughs) (laughs) it's... It's a great way of opening up new areas and showing the scale of the phase and threat. You can't just slap Dark Samus around and call it good anymore. No, no, no. Each planet you visit has a parasitic phase on spewing meteor crash into it, corrupting the landscape and its denizens. These stories high Leviathan seeds have containment fields to breach before flying into the core, which can only be done by ship. Yeah, it's just a really nice development of uh, all the gameplay mechanics that we've seen in the first two games. It's it's just a nice step forward. I thought it was really, really cool. The action in this game takes place on five different planets, instead of just one world with interconnected biomes it's a little easier to navigate when it comes to backtracking with the new movement tech so instead of just one massive world to try and find that large cliff that you can now swing across with your grapple beam and also plan the route through each area in this one world whilst avoiding the rooms that you can't get through yet because you don't have the item that you're going to get later on in the game you can just eliminate a good chunk of the map by virtue of them being on a completely different planet Each world is still big enough to get lost in, or rather explore thoroughly for extended periods. But sequestering the different planets helps streamline the exploration without dampening the experience too much. It's like watching a time-lapse of a slime mould filling a Petri dish. Mm. And that's it. It's just a fantastic Metroid game, and I really enjoy playing it. But it's not the best in the series, and we'll find out um, why others will better very soon, I shouldn't wonder. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, I never played it because I, I didn't have a Wii. It's one of many reasons why I, I'm desperate for Metro Prime Trilogy to be released on the Switch.
2: Yeah, yeah, me too.
0: Partly because of the fact that I didn't play it, I've always been a little bit sort of tentative about the game, mainly, mainly because of the motion controls. And I know that it was because of the way that you, you, you controlled the game. Inevitably, the game became more of an action game than an adventure game. And it was something that I really liked about the first two Metro Prime games was the fact that they were first-person adventure games rather than first-person shooters.
2: Yes, yes. And it's
0: one of the reasons why I didn't like Metro Prime Hunters as much on the DS because, again, the way you controlled it meant that it was an action game first and foremost and hopefully it's inevitable when uh, that, that it will come out as a trilogy on the Switch. But I, I hope that they, uh, they have taken out the motion controls or at least got an an alternate control option in there so you can control it normally but either way i'm still gonna have a great time playing through it eventually i I mean
1: i've never played any of these games and i'm quite excited that in the last few weeks there's been kind of a new swathe of rumors that we could be getting the switch port in in very near future so we could all be shooting all those metroids together soon yeah (laughs) really
0: really hope so i really hope so can you imagine it would kind of be like how it is now but we'd be playing metroid yeah i think so yes
1: we could talk on the phone but at the same time we could go pew pew on our individual screens
0: yeah what more could you want
1: (laughs) exactly it's true
0: so there we have it another three games first of all we had tony hawk's pro skater 3 before doom and finally metroid prime 3 corruption fantastic what a great trilogy of games if you've enjoyed this episode or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on social media, tweet about it, put it on Facebook, put it on Instagram, do a TikTok about it, if that's what you do. If you don't know how to use TikTok. <laughs> You can find us on Facebook, <laughs> facebook.com forward slash Hour3Cents, if that's what people are still doing. And you can chat to us on there about these games. You can talk to us about what you're playing. You can even ask us questions that you might like us to answer in a future episode. Or you can reach out to us individually. If you go onto to Twitter, you can find me at Jonathan Dunn.
1: I am still, as ever, at Chaz underscore Hodges. Eternally. I am Clement underscore Boo.
0: Please do check out our YouTube channel as well. Have a look at our video content and subscribe to that. And if you really fancy it, do check out our Patreon page as well and see what more you could get out of us, all you lucky things. A big kiss. Uh, big kiss from Chris. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and please do join us next week for our 36th favourite video games of all time. Till then, goodbye.
1: Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20 minute rock epics about war ready armadillas that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about
2: the most pretentious music of all progressive rock right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hunter Hunter, Yu, Yu Hakusho, Literary Analysis, Comparative Localization, JoJo References. The works of Yoshihiro Togashi hold a specific kind of magic, and the people who seek to examine their roots and spiritual descendants are known as the Spirit Hunters, available on the Greenlit Podcast Network.